And if you have your notebooks for our continuing series, What's the Difference? We'll be on page 68 in a moment. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up. 2.30 this afternoon is our quarterly family meeting. Normally, we try to restrict those to an hour, and I suspect that it'll be done in an hour. So if time this afternoon is an issue for you, which it probably is for most of us, uh, then uh, you can count on that. Uh, I I have to fudge on it a little bit because I never know how many questions folks will have and all of that, but uh, we think we can cover what we need to cover in that uh, time frame, 2.30 to 3.30. So 2.30 this afternoon is our uh, family meeting, sometimes called a business meeting. We prefer family meeting. Those of you that are members of our church then, uh, if you can make it to that, uh, please do. This coming Wednesday is uh, our midweek program. We have that. Uh, we have programs, ministries for every age, uh, nursery on up, all the way through adult. But this is the last Wednesday of this semester, and then we won't start up again until January. Uh, so if you want to, if you have never been, you want to do a test drive for what we do on Wednesday nights. Show up this Wednesday. You can get an idea, a flavor of what happens. Uh, but then we will be done for the holidays, and then uh, we'll. Uh, get together again in January, actually not until January 21st. January 21st is when the second semester will, will start. Next uh, uh, Sunday is, Sunday night is our adult Christmas fellowship, and we always have a great time with that, so if you uh, can, then I encourage you to make arrangements to come. It is the adult Christmas fellowship, so we don't have child care for that, so if you have children, you'd need to make arrangements for it. In uh, the program, the last several weeks, we've identified what it is we ask you to bring. If your last name is A through L, I think you bring an appetizer, and if uh, it's uh, M through Z, it's something else. You can read it in the, in the program. Uh, but that's the food items we ask you to bring. Uh, but uh, no, we ask everybody to bring an appetizer. That's what it is. Okay. There you go. Everybody brings an appetizer, and then if you're A through L, you also bring a dessert, and if you're M, U, M through Z, you bring two two-liter uh, pops. That's what it is. Yeah, good. Uh, but uh, the other thing you need to bring, everybody needs to bring, is a white elephant gift, wrapped without your name on it, and uh, it, a white elephant gift is so named because it's kind of a gag gift, and we always have a good time uh, seeing what folks uh, bring, and then at the end, your name will be revealed. We do go around and say, okay, who brought the... And then you have to, okay, so just be aware of that. It's got to be something you're willing to own up to that you brought. I mean, one year, uh, you know, one year I, got, I ended up uh, with a bottle of, like, champagne or something, okay? Well, somebody had to own up to that, and that person is now at another church. So, we, uh, <laughs> so just be careful what you bring, all right? But always a good time. That's uh, at 6.30, 6.30 next Sunday night. We're trying to figure out what's going on with that. Uh, but uh, I know it's uh, jolted some of you. Uh, and uh, I, I, I happen to know from my vantage point that uh, the dead do rise. Because uh, I, I see people nodding off and then we give you that prod. And then the last announcement is this. You'll hear us over the next few weeks uh, announcing our newcomers orientation and new members classes. The newcomers orientation is for, as the name suggests, those who are newcomers to our church. And we take four weeks, three times a year, on Sunday mornings during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, uh, for me to have a four-week class to tell you who we are, what we believe, where we've come from, what we hope to accomplish in the future, 
uh, in that uh, smaller setting, answer any questions that you might have. And it's an orientation then to our church. It is four weeks. I have a booklet of material that I go through with you in those four weeks. And by the time you're done with that, you have a pretty complete picture about who we are to help you make a decision as to whether or not this would be the place that God would have you to uh, serve and grow. Now, we say in the program, and I repeat here, that the orientation is for information only. Uh, and you'll just have to take my word for that, that we really do honor that. If you show up at that, you're not obligating yourself to anything. We give you the information, and in fact, in the fourth and final session of that class, I say the ball is now in your court. We tell you the things that you can do. If you have further questions, follow up with me, all of that, but I say I'm not going to follow up with you. So we're not going to hassle you at the end of that, and uh, those of you that have been through that know that we actually make good on that commitment. So you can come and uh, be secure in knowing that you're not obligating yourself and we're not going to uh, hassle you after it's over. But it is good information for you to make a decision prayerfully about where the Lord would have you serve. So that starts January the 11th, January the 11th, and then for uh, the three Sundays in uh, January, and then February 1st. So January 11th through February 1st, we will have that class and our new members class simultaneous with that, also running four weeks, and that's for those who have joined the church since our last new members class. And you'll get an invitation, because we know, of course, who you guys are, and uh, you'll be invited to come to that new members class so you can get a deeper dive into our church and getting you uh, assimilated and acclimated. All right. We in this class, What's the Difference, have been looking at the uh, origins of denominations. And in order to look at the origins of the various denominations, we started several weeks ago looking at the year 1517 because that's a pivotal, pivotal year. So if I turn this way, nothing happens. But if I turn this way, sometimes it happens. And when you want to make it happen, you can't. But uh, it seems like it's always when I turn to the right, if that helps anybody. This uh, power pack is, uh, this remote uh, pack is on the right, so I don't know. Um, and, and we started in the year 1517, and the reason is this, because October 31st, 1517 was a pivotal year in the development of the denominations that we uh, see around us now. And that's because that was the beginning of something called the Protestant Reformation. So it was a protest, thus the word Protestant, and then a desire for reform, and so Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And we looked a little bit at some of the history as to why a Reformation was necessary. Some of the teachings that had become popular uh, in the then-dominant church and how those departed from what the Bible taught in some very significant, significant ways. And therefore, there was the need for this protest, this reform. Now, one question you might have if you're tracking with all of that is, well, how did we get here in the first place? How did it come to be that you had a, an organization that was so dominant that most people who were part of what was called Christendom were part of this organization and that it wielded such power? Uh, how, did that, how did that happen? And so having explained what it was that brought about the Protestant Reformation, now for the last few weeks I've been trying to go back further, in fact, all the way to the first century, to show the beginning of the church and then trace its development. And that's what we started to do uh, last week. And we saw last week that the church in the first century began to grow and began to grow uh, very rapidly. 
Uh, in the book of Acts in your New Testament, it describes that rapid growth of the first century church. But as the church grew, there was also opposition to the church. And on page 65, we talk about that. We're, we're on page 68 today, but I'm just telling you that page 65 has the notes about the opposition that the church experienced. That opposition we saw came in the form of, of heretical, contrary teachings to what the Bible uh, says and also in the form of, of persecution. Now, here's, the, here's a, a pivotal issue for you to uh, understand. That in the first century, the church had the great advantage of having the apostles who were the founders of the church, that Christ left to be the foundation of the church. They had the apostles uh, on the scene. And when heretical teachings arose, the apostles uh, were able to correct those. Uh, heretical teachings. And in fact, much of your New Testament are writings that were written in response to false teachings. So the book of Galatians, for example, is entirely written to refute a false approach to the, the gospel. You had the apostles on hand to do that, but by the end of the first century, all of the apostles had died. And now you move into the second century and you have persecution and you have heretical teachings, but who is it that's going to handle that, uh, those issues on behalf of the church? And the church responded in uh, a few ways, uh, beginning on page 66. The church responded with the apostles' teaching, so they continued to promote uh, and to propagate the teaching that had come from the apostles, but then also... And I'm going to say, and then also again, and again, and what's happening with the speaker there? You guys just stay with me as best you can, all right, uh, through that. Do I am? Okay. What, I did that? Oh. So you get me off of this. Okay, so I should, all right, very good. So I'm, all right, thank you. So they used the apostles' teaching then to uh, refute the false teachings uh, during the second century uh, after the apostles were gone. And they also repaired to the apostles' writing, but they were still codifying, gathering the apostles' writing into what we now have as, as the Bible. So they had the teaching of the apostles in the form of what we call the church fathers, those who had been associates, direct associates with the apostles, and they were able to serve as kind of quasi-apostles to convey the apostles' teaching. And then the apostles' writings that became the New Testament are being gathered as well. So you had both of those avenues to refute false teaching. Uh, the apostles' teaching itself given in oral form, and then the apostles' writing. But then you had the development of a couple of other things, beginning on page 67. And this is, a, this is pivotal. Not just the apostles' teaching and the apostles' writing, but top of page 67, the claim to apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. And I've tried to make the case on page 67 that the apostles were an absolutely unique group. And they're unique for the reasons that I give on page 67, that they were known just as the Twelve, uh, that their names are written on the walls of the foundation of the New Jerusalem, uh, that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. There are a number of reasons 
that the Bible gives that the apostles were a select group, unique group of people. But now the apostles are dead in the second century, and you had now people who are not apostles uh, claiming apostolic authority, and that becomes a, a huge issue. In fact, at the bottom of page 67, some began to advocate a difference between those who were leaders of churches at the local level, churches like this, and those who were above, outside of and above the, the local church. And that's a differentiation that the Bible knows nothing of. In fact, if you look at the bottom of page 67, where we have the government of the church there, point B, after the apostles, the scriptures provide but two offices in the church, those of pastor and deacon. With regard to the office of pastor, the Bible uses several terms, but it needs to be noted that each of those several terms refers to the same person in the same office. And you see that from Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5 teaches the same thing. So the terms bishop, presbyter, pastor, overseer, these are all synonyms for the same office, the reason the different terms were used was to emphasize different functions that that person would, would carry out. But these were not different offices. So a bishop, for example, is not someone above the church. A pastor is a bishop. So next week, I want to be called bishop when I, uh, all right? And that's, we, we laugh because that's not customary for us, uh, and I, I much prefer pastor. Uh, but it is a perfectly legitimate biblical term. Uh, elder is another term uh, for pastors in the New Testament. But they are, as I say, synonyms. Bottom of page 67, pragmatic developments, though, with regard to apostolic authority occurred in the second century. In response to the challenges faced by the church in the early centuries, both internal and external, some proposed the elevation of certain persons and offices above the pastor. And then on page 68, uh, I, I'm told I pronounced uh, this name instead of Ignatius, Ignatius, and uh, the reason I did do that is because my history professor in seminary pronounced his name Ignatius. So anytime I see that, I say Ignatius. So... You know, tomato, tomato for you, Ignatius, Ignatius, whatever you, you want. But I'm saying Ignatius, okay? But writing in the early 2nd century, century, Ignatius made, quote, the first clear indication of a difference between elders and bishops. Now notice, this is coming from not the Bible. This is coming from a Christian leader who's making this pragmatic change in what the Bible speaks of with regard to the government of, of the church. But this is, this is uh, planting seeds that would then uh, uh, bore, uh, give birth to ill fruit in the future. Now why? What's the rationale for a monarchial bishop, one who's above the churches? The reasons for the rise of the monarchial bishop in distinction from the pastor are, and you see those listed there, and we saw some of those last week. So you have these pragmatic developments now, beginning early on, in the absence of the apostles, some claiming apostolic authority and authority above the church and authority above the only offices that the Bible gives in the New Testament uh, after the apostles, those of pastors and deacons, making bishops, for example, something other than a local church pastor. And then you add to that, middle of page 68, apostolic succession. What does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches that the apostles were a select group chosen for a select purpose. Uh, 
and time. And the apostles are clearly distinguished from elders and pastors. Ephesians 4, it was Christ who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So there are pastors that lead the church. That's what you find throughout the New Testament. But apostles are a different group. They're listed first for a good reason there. And, uh, but they, are, they have passed from the scene. But again, just like with apostolic authority, now with apostolic succession, you have, uh, you have some pragmatic developments. Clement, in the year 95, to combat the problem that had arisen in Corinth, wrote and admonished obedience to the bishops of the church in Corinth. He wrote that elders, that is bishops, had authority in the church because they followed directly in the line of the apostles. They were appointed, appointed by and spoke with apostolic authority. Now, part of that statement is true. Elders, bishops, pastors have authority in the church. But it's not because they follow directly in the line of the apostles. So I, the Bible assigns authority to those of us who are pastors, ordained pastors in the church here. But I don't, we don't follow in the line of the apostles. And that's not the reason that we have the, uh, the authority. It's because the Bible speaks of it. So you can see that pragmatic development, understandable though it might be, nevertheless gave birth to this ill fruit that we'll see in a bit. And then uh, Irenaeus, uh, in him, the authority of the bishop took an enormous leap. This important teaching of Irenaeus arose directly out of his long struggle with a heresy uh, called Gnosticism, and he wrote to the Gnostics, if the apostles had known hidden mysteries like the Gnostics claimed to have, they would have delivered them, especially to those whom they were also committing, the churches themselves. For they were desirous that these men be very perfect and blameless in all things, whom also they were leaving behind as their successors, delivering up their own place of government to these men. And again, the Bible does not teach this transition of apostolic succession that you're going to have a line now of people who are direct successors of the apostles. But some began to teach that as a way to handle the kinds of opposition that the church was experiencing. You no longer have the apostles on the scene, and so now you have people stepping into that vacuum. Now note, with the establishment of those twin doctrines of apostolic authority and succession, the next step was the recognition of a supreme bishop. And the most likely candidate for that was the bishop of Rome. And why would the Bishop of Rome be the most likely candidate? Well, we have uh, a number of reasons, and I have a, a handout that I will give to you all before the end of our class. By the way, with today, uh, counting today, we have four more classes. So we will finish not on December 28th, but on uh, January 4th will be our, our final uh, week in this material. And I have a one-page sheet that shows some of the reasons why the Bishop of Rome, with his power, prestige, and so on, became the logical one to become this supreme bishop, which ultimately became the papacy, became the, the pope. All right, so that is how uh, these pragmatic developments occurred that would then eventually give rise to what we know as Roman Catholicism led by, uh, by the pope in Rome. Liturgy and polity of the early church. Liturgy refers to worship. Polity refers to government. So the worship and the government of the early church. The New Testament and early centuries of the church saw a very simple form of worship and government. The earliest descriptions are those of 
Justin Martyr and the Didache. Now, these are writings from the second century. So these are early church writings describing how the early church went about its worship and how it went about uh, its, how it was structured for its government. Notice what's said. The service which was held on the day of the sun, that would be Sunday, started with the reading of the, quote, memoirs of the apostles. Now, what do you think the memoirs of the apostles are? Those are the letters of the apostles that we, we have in our New Testament. So they would start with a reading of the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets. What are the writings of the prophets? Those are readings from the uh, Old Testament. So you have New Testament readings and Old Testament readings. For a period as long as time permits, an exhortation or homily based on the reading was then given by the, quote, president. I like that title, too. I'll go with that, Uh, president. (laughs) The congregation then stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed the kiss of peace. The elements of bread and water and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers, to which the people responded by an amen. The deacons then distributed them to the homes of those unable to attend. They finally took up a collection, then the meeting was dismissed, and the people made their way to their homes. Now you see from these two documents, that is a uh, conflation of what Justin Martyr said about the worship of the early church, and then uh, what uh, the Didache, the Didache is a Greek word for teaching, and the full title of that document, the Didache, is the, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, that's what it's called. But it was a second century document. And you take those together, you see a very simple form of worship, don't you? They gather on Sunday. There's not a lot of pomp and ceremony. There's prayer. There's reading of the word. There's the Lord's table. uh, There's a collection. And the people go. Does that sound familiar? Does that look familiar to to anyone? There's a reason for that. Okay, That's that's pretty much what we do when we come together. The things that that, uh, they're talking about there. And that's what you find in the New Testament as well. So... How did it go from this simple form of liturgy, this simple form of worship, to the pomp and ceremony that it became and that you see today? With all of the positions, the titles, the headdress, all of the, uh, the rites and ceremonies, how did all that come about? Where did all of that come from? And bottom of page 69... I talk about imperial church worship, imperial church worship. And here uh, I quote from Bruce Shelley in his book, Church History in Plain Language. We have that book for you among several books that are in the recommended resources for this series in our resource center, if you care uh, to get one. But Bruce Shelley says this, The Emperor Constantine is one of the major figures of church history. After his conversion... Christianity moves swiftly from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. The movement started the 4th century as a persecuted minority. It ended the century as the established religion of the empire. Thus, the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. To serve the state, it refined its doctrine and developed its structure. As the emperor became the number one layperson in the church, a simple ceremony no longer sufficed. The pomp and circumstance of the imperial court was adapted to honor the emperor of emperors. Processionals, lights, special dress, and numerous other elements added to the grand setting. 
So if you want to know where what you see now in the Roman Catholic Church came from, it came from the 4th century. And it came from the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine to Christianity. And as a result, as Shelley notes then, there was a major change then from this simple approach that you find in the New Testament and you find in the second century uh, and at the beginning of the third century to by the end of the, uh, end of the fourth century, the end of the 300s, uh, you find this uh, regal, royal uh, approach to, to worship. So there's imperial church worship, the way worship went changed radically in the 4th century. But there's also the way the church was organized and governed, imperial church government. You had state involvement in church matters and you had church involvement in state matters. Because with the conversion of the emperor to Christianity and Christianity being declared the official religion of the empire, now you didn't have any separation of church and state. You had a wedding of church and state. So state involvement in church affairs. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants, and he demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. An example of state involvement in church affairs is seen in the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. The purpose of the council was to address the issue of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. Some very vocal and influential heretics were teaching that the Son was a created being. Arius was the heretic who promoted that. The council denounced Arianism as heresy, but aside from the theological importance of this issue, the council represented another important development, namely the council was called by the emperor. And thus a precedent was set that continued for centuries. Now do you all see that? What's happening in the fourth century is, as I've noted in prior pages, that you have heretical teachings that are being bandied about. And those heretical teachings must be combated. They're combated by the writings of the apostles, the teachings of the apostles. There were apologists that taught and defended true doctrine for Christianity. There were polemicists, I mentioned all those in the prior pages, who went on the offense against these false teachings. But now in the fourth century, you have the, the empire and the emperor as Christian, I say in quotes. And now Christian things involve the state. And so you have an issue as important as a theological controversy about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and in particular, whether or not Jesus, God the Son, is indeed fully God. And Arius is teaching no, that he has not existed from all eternity, as has God the Father, but rather he was a created being. In fact, Arius' famous, infamous statement is this, quote, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Christ was not, said Arius. Now, by the way, does anyone know the group uh, in which Arianism lives today? It is Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses are uh, followers of Arius, even if they don't know it, because they believe that there was a time when he was not and that he is the first and highest created being but nevertheless that, that Jesus is a created being teaches Jehovah's uh, witness, witnesses. So uh, Arius was, was condemned. Now this is just as an aside but I'm always fascinated by these historical anecdotes and, 
at the beginning of the 4th century, the beginning of the 300s, Arius' view was very popular. He had a lot of followers. And he was opposed primarily by a man named Athanasius. Athanasius. And Athanasius, at the Council of Nicaea, opposed and debated Arius. And at the beginning of the council, Athanasius was in the minority. And in fact, at one point, Athanasius was told, quote, the whole world is against you. And his famous reply was, then I am against the world. And he took a stand on the biblical teaching of who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And by the end of the council, won the day by refuting the errors of Arius, but doing so from the teaching of Scripture. And so they pronounced orthodox teaching on on the what we know as the Trinity. Now, this is also an aside, but they didn't then invent or declare as dogma the Trinity. You guys get that? I mean, the Trinity was already a truth before the Council of Nicaea ever met. All they were doing was refuting the errors of some who denied the Trinity and then clarifying that as the orthodox position of Scripture. But the state involvement in that involved Constantine being the one who says, I want you guys to all get together and figure this out. Now that's foreign to us, that you would have a secular potentate, a power figure, who would call a religious group together to say, figure this out. But that was the wedding of church and state in the 4th century, and it continued on for centuries. So you had state involvement in church affairs, but you also had church involvement in state affairs. And you see this uh, long quote here from Earl Cairns, Earl Cairns, excuse me, in uh, his book, Christianity Through the Centuries, which we also have in the Resource Center. And he says, historical events during this era conspired to enhance the reputation of the Bishop of Rome. Rome had been the traditional center of authority for the Roman world for half a millennium and was the largest city in the West. After Constantine moved the capital of the empire to Constantinople in the year 330. All right, so just stop there. So here's Constantine. He's the Roman emperor. He is converted to Christianity. There's a sea change now in the, the presentation of Christianity in its liturgy and also in its governmental structure. And this happens. He's converted in the year 312. 312. So a few decades later, nearly two decades later, he moves the capital of the empire from Rome and he names the city in all humility after himself, okay? Constantinople. Constantinople is in what is modern-day Turkey, and the city of Constantinople is actually the city of Istanbul, Turkey, today. So that will become important because an eastern church and a western church developed after this. And we're going to see a few centuries later there was a split between the east and the, and the west. And so you have, anybody ever heard of the Eastern Orthodox Church? That's where, that, that's where that comes from, and these are the roots of that. So he moves the capital of the empire, back to that quote from Cairns, to Constantinople in 330, and the center of political gravity shifted from Rome to that city. And this left the Roman bishop as the single strongest individual in Rome for great periods of time. And the people of that area came to look to him for temporal as well as spiritual leadership whenever a crisis faced them. 
He was a tower of strength during the sacking of Rome in 410 by the Visigoths. And his clever diplomacy had at least been able to save the city from the torch. The emperor at Constantinople was remote from Rome and its problems, but the bishop was near at hand to exercise effective authority in meeting political as well as spiritual crises. When the imperial throne in the West fell to the hands of barbarians in 476, 476, the people of Italy came to look to the Roman bishop for political as well as spiritual leadership. This is why, these are the roots then of why you have a place called Vatican City, which is a sovereign nation to itself, a sovereign state to itself within Italy, located in Rome. But the Vatican has its own ambassadors. You have ambassadors from and to the Vatican as a country. And the Pope then as a, as a secular leader, but also a, a spiritual leader. These are the roots of, of that. Now, with all of that, bottom of page 70, I say, when in Rome. By the end of the 4th century, Christianity had achieved a dominant position in the empire, and Christians felt they could borrow cultural language and ideas more freely than before. And you see the footnote there? Down at the bottom, worshiping like pagans, question mark. That is an article, an excellent article from a magazine called uh, Christian History Magazine. And they had a whole art, uh, issue of Christian History magazine uh, devoted to the worship of the early church. And this is one of the art- from one of the articles there. So if you wonder how, how what we see developed, you have to go back to 312 and the conversion of Constantine. And then all of the changes that happened in the 4th century after that. So if someone says that the Roman Catholic Church started with Peter... I would beg to differ for reasons that we've already covered in the notes. That Jesus did not give to Peter a primacy above the other apostles and all that is is claimed. But rather the historical development of the power of Rome came through the Roman Empire and the conversion of the emperor Constantine. So on page 71 we develop that a bit further. The Emperor Constantine did two things that were great import to the church. He converted the empire to Christianity, and I have that in quotes, converted. And two, he moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople. Constantine's conversion in the year 312 had a number of effects on the church. Some good, but most were detrimental. One positive effect was the cessation of persecution of Christians. The emperor also directed the financing of churches and other favorable projects for the church. Now, let me stop there. Now, this is happening then in the 4th century. As we meet in this room now, uh, most of us have never had occasion to think about the fact that for the first few centuries of the church, people didn't meet in places like this. Uh, They met in catacombs. They met in hiding. They met in homes. And so... Uh, I, for one, am very thankful that God has allowed us to have this place and allows us to gather here. But it's also another reason that, for me, I'm not terribly choosy about how it all looks. Uh, You know, we want it to look okay so it doesn't turn people off. But beyond that, I don't care about the ostentation or any of that. Because God's people in the first centuries of the church had no places to meet. And God's work went forward. And there are God's people in places throughout the world right now who meet in hiding and meet in secret. And I have had the privilege of teaching some of those people in China. 
So I just say that to you, friends, is to, to put that in context for us because all of us have only known a public Christianity that could meet and assemble in freedom and without fear of persecution and have public places to meet. But the church did not have that for the first several centuries. And then Constantine comes, and he now makes it the official religion of the empire, and persecution ceases, and uh, all things being equal, this is a great thing. And now we can have these public meeting places. But what happens is that the church very easily becomes the friend of the world. And when the church becomes the friend of the world, it easily becomes like the world. And that's what we mean uh, when we, the quote at the bottom of page 70, that they felt they could adapt and borrow cultural forms more freely than before. So when in Rome, do as the Romans do, is the saying. And that's what the church began to do. All right, back to page 71 then. One positive effect, middle of that first paragraph, was the cessation of persecution of Christians. The emperor also directed the financing of churches and other, other favorable projects for the church. On the other hand, this newfound acceptability meant that, unlike the first three centuries, some would become, quote, Christian merely because of the bandwagon effect. It also meant wedding the church and state, a union that would have consequences for centuries to come. The second of Constantine's contributions, the move of the capital from Rome to Constantinople, created a vacuum of temporal power in the West. The Bishop of Rome was in a perfect position to fill that void. The people began to look to the bishop for both spiritual and temporal leadership. And so the city was threatened by barbarians, as we've already said. Now, third paragraph. These developments conspired to create an environment ready-made for a skilled leader. In the year 590, Gregory became Bishop of Rome. His able administrative leadership and political savvy further advanced the authority and esteem of the Roman bishop. On one occasion, he was able to fund an army that turned back an invading force. Further, he asserted his leadership over the other bishops and over the patriarch of Constantinople. For several centuries after the fall of Rome, political survival was a main concern for the pope. With the rival patriarchs vying for supremacy, supremacy or at least equality, and invading hordes of barbarians knocking at the city gates, the popes formed political alliances with rulers who could protect them. In addition, the popes were able to advance their own power while securing badly needed military assistance. The eventual result of this political maneuvering was the development of something called the Holy Roman Empire. Karen says this, The Lombards knocked on the gates of Rome more than once during this period. These difficulties forced the Pope to look around for a powerful ally who would support his claims to spiritual power and to temporal possessions in Italy. The Frankish rulers seemed to be the most promising allies, and with them the Popes made an alliance that was to influence both ecclesiastical, that is church, and political affairs during the Middle Ages. But William Webster, in his excellent book, and we have this in our resource center as well, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, says the papacy could never have emerged without a fundamental restructuring of the constitution of the church and of men's perceptions of the history of that constitution. As long as the true facts of church history were well known, it would serve as a buffer against any unlawful ambitions. However, in the ninth century, this would be then the uh, 800s, a literary forgery occurred which completely revolutionized the ancient government of the church in the West. It provided a legal foundation for the ascendancy of the papacy in Western Christendom. This forgery is known as the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals, written around 845. The Decretals are a complete fabrication. 
They set forth precedents for the exercise of sovereign authority of the popes over the universal church prior to the 4th century and make it appear the popes had always exercised sovereign dominion and had ultimate authority even over church councils. If we want to know what share these letters had in the building of the Roman fabric, we have only to look at the canon law, the Decretum of Gratia, quotes 324 times the epistles of the popes of the first four centuries. And of these 324 quotations, 313 are from the letters which are now universally known to be spurious. All right, now that's a mouthful. So what's that about in our final minutes? Some dude, William Webster, writes a book called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, and he claims that there was these forged documents in the ninth century. So he must be some raving Baptist dude who doesn't know what he's talking about. But here in that last line at the top of page 73, he says these are now universally known to be spurious. Now, that is, that is an absolutely factual claim. And I encourage you often when, when I have these kinds of things for you to do your own quick research on that. So if you Google the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, you'll get a whole boatload of information about this. And you will find that there is no controversy. It is universally acknowledged that these were forgeries. And they were forged forgeries that benefited the Bishop of Rome in making a claim, and here was the most, this was the most uh, uh, influential claim. In one of the documents, these forged documents, it's called the Donation of Constantine. The Donation of Constantine. And the claim was made in that uh, document that the Emperor Constantine had donated, had bequeathed, had given large tracts of land to the church. And as a result, these tracts of land were commandeered by the, by the church. And the power of the church increased exponentially. And its wealth increased exponentially. During the Middle Ages, it is, it is uh, estimated that the Roman Catholic Church owned a quarter of the land in all of Europe. So you look at the, the unbelievable wealth and the power and you wonder where that came from. These are the roots of where it came from. And when in the ninth century you now had the donation of Constantine and this was passed off and believed for centuries until it was shown to be a forgery by literary analysis. But by that time, the damage is done. By that time, you have a, a behemoth of an organization with wealth and power that has become imperial in both its government and in its, its worship. So last paragraph there, and we'll be done. The authority claims of Roman Catholicism ultimately devolve upon the institution of the papacy. The papacy is the center and source from which all authority flows for Roman Catholicism. Rome has long claimed that this institution was established by Christ and has been a force in the church from the very beginning, but the historical record gives a very different picture. The institution was promoted primarily through the falsification of historical fact through the extensive use of forgeries. Forgery is its foundation. As an institution, it was, much, it was a much later development in church history, beginning with Gregorian reforms of Pope Gregory VII in the 11th century and was restricted completely to the West. The Eastern Church never accepted the false claims of the Roman Church and refused to submit to its insistence that the Bishop of Rome was supreme ruler of the Church. 
This they knew was not true to the historical record and was a perversion of the true teaching of Scripture, the papal exegesis of which was not taught by the church fathers. Now, this last thing on page 73, I want to say something about it, and then we really will go, all right? But this last thing, excommunication and the interdict, it just shows you the zenith of papal power that this could be done. But here's what that is, and then you can read that on your own. But here's what that is. By the Middle Ages, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had acquired such power that he was able to uh, excommunicate kings and sovereigns of other nations. Now, if he excommunicates them from the church, one, and then two, imposes what's called the interdict. Here's what the interdict is. The Pope says that the priests in that country cannot uh, celebrate the Mass. Now, given what we looked at with regard to Mass and how central Mass is in Roman Catholicism, to having your sins atoned for, to having your sins covered, if the Pope says the priests cannot distribute the Eucharist to the people, what are the people going to do? They're going to rise up, and who are they going to rise up against? They're going to rise up against the guy who's not doing what the Pope's telling him to do. And this happened time and time again, such that the Pope was able to bring kings to their knees, often literally to their knees, because he was able to impose the interdict. And then he would remove the uh, prohibition, and then the priests could uh, offer Eucharist again, and then all was right with the world, but more power accruing to, accruing to the Pope. Okay, All right, we will uh, move on from there, and we will see how the church in the east and the church in the west split in the year 1054. And uh, we'll be done with the history stuff probably next Sunday. Okay, And then we'll be able to look at the denominations and what the denominations themselves believe that came out of all of that. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to learn of you, learn about you, to learn of your work in your world so that we can know who we are and from whence we have come and how you have in your good providence provided for us to have your word and allowed us to come to uh, your mission for such a time as this. So, Lord, help us to be people who are people of knowledge, of understanding, and people of commitment to our Lord and our Lord's mission. Help us to show that commitment this week as we serve you, and we ask you to bring us back next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.